0: and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. As any cinephile will tell you, taste rarely develops in a linear fashion. It tends to grow in little bursts of curiosity and consumption. There's the director who meant everything to you in high school. And then there's the artier director you discovered in college that helped propel your interest in more difficult films. Or perhaps it's the reverse. You came around to commercial cinema after overdosing on the austerity of slow cinema. Whatever the case might be, the filmmakers that first capture our imagination tend to shape how we perceive the art form. In this episode, I asked our guests to discuss two filmmakers who meant something to them as budding cinephiles, one early, one slightly later on. I was joined by...
1: Nick Davis, and I'm a professor of film and gender studies and lit at Northwestern, and I'm a contributing editor at Film Comment.
2: Uh, Michael Koreski, editorial director of Film Society at Lincoln Center. And Gira Shambu, I teach at Canisius College in Buffalo, New York.
0: The conversation was so long and impressive that we had to cut it in two. Here's the first part. Who is Jane Campion to you?
1: Jane Campion is, of all the people I've never met in the world, the one I owe the most to, except now I have met her because of you guys. Thank you. I stayed late at school one day to see my friends in the school play at 7 o'clock. And to kill the time between 3 and 7, I walked across the street to this strip mall multiplex that had like four screens of popcorn to pay for two screens of art. And so I thought (laughs) I'd see this movie that I'd read about in magazines, and it was the piano. And that was when I switched from being a math person to everything i do now wow gender of cinema all of it thanks jane
0: (laughs) so after you saw the piano did you go back to see it again or
1: like like the woman in vertigo like every (laughs) week and friends would start to come not even curious about the movie but curious about what was happening to me (laughs) and i just felt like i didn't know that the camera could make so many assertions of itself and Mm -hmm. I wasn't used to thinking about that and that the sound could make so many assertions of itself but I also felt struck by what I feel like I saw in lots of her movies that characters who had no idea yesterday they were going to do this today and had no guess what they might still do tomorrow Mm -hmm. but still felt like I understood what the through lines were and to see somebody so invested in types and archetypes and historical patterns, but also profound singularity and eccentricity, even from yourself. I found that really liberating. That was, I think, the thing that pushed me so far into her camp immediately.
0: Well, what did you follow it up with? Because obviously this was the era of you could go to the neighborhood video store and see anything.
1: And you could get that tragic cropped Sweetie VHS, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the palette of which was like olive to sepia. Okay, well,
0: I saw Sweetie on Bravo. So I saw it with many a commercial break. Yeah. I (laughs) saw an angel at
1: my table that way, which meant it was like five and a half hours long. (laughs) Um, But Portrait of a Lady was not too long after that. So I Mm -hmm. think that um, and somehow I saw her shorts. I remember seeing Peel pretty fast and I don't even remember how that would have happened. Maybe Bravo showed that actually with Mm -hmm. the things that they aired. And that made a huge impression. And again, just seeing like when Portrait came out, which I felt like was such a different experience of watching it get clubbed by most of the people who reviewed it, but it felt like a pretty honorable staging of that novel, but also definitely one person's idiosyncratic vision of that novel at the same time. And the fact that those things could be in balance without seeming too preoccupied with concepts like balance, I just was enchanted.
3: Had you actually read the novel at that age, at that point?
1: I was like halfway through the novel when I went to see the movie, I think. Um, and that turned out to only be about 10 minutes into the movie because she starts <laughs> it so late. But
3: That's interesting because I, I, I it, it came out when I was so young. Well, I was in high school and Portrait of Italy came out. So I had not read the novel. I would not read it for many years. I'm glad that I waited because it has turned out to be my favorite book, basically, and I would not have appreciated it at that mm. time. But I remember even then without having... Read the book yet, knowing that what she was doing via just her cinematic grammar was clearly not novelistic. Yeah. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, oh, she's a filmmaker. And I already knew because of the piano, it was also an obsession of mine that mm. this is what she was doing. But I remember it was kind of a revelation for me what cinematic adaptations could be by watching and being confused by the, the portrait of a lady. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I uh,
1: that was also the era when, well, I guess two things. I was an English major in college, and that's when that movie came out. And Wings of the Dove, which showed up so soon afterward, I felt like got so much more credit for kind of honoring James or having a sense of a Jamesian spirit and not putting yourself out in front of the story. And I teach a James in film class now, and it becomes more obvious over the year. There's like two lines of dialogue in Wings of the Dove that are in the book. Almost no plot event actually also happens in the novel. It just has the cosmetic appearance. I mean, I love that movie too, but of of doing literature faithfully hers is actually quite close and it has the opposite reputation so that was really striking to me too Mm. but also that was the moment in college when i was writing you know my attempts at movie reviews on the web and getting a lot of pushback about are you an english major by any chance do you know that there's more than plot and character i was like well well, such as what, you know, and, um, and... Wise
0: unseen? What's that? <laughs> right. Stop
1: throwing those accent marks around. Um, uh, and, and her movies, among some other people we'll probably talk about today, were so informative to me, not just of noticing that, but understanding they weren't embellishments, that they were the movie. Mm.
0: Top of the Lake. How it... F- oh, you're so excited. <laughs> you're so glad <laughs> I'm asking. This, this is me
1: trying to contain it, actually. Yeah.
0: Obviously with the return of Twin Peaks and like a lot of directors dabbling in or doing very long form, interesting experiments in quote unquote, prestige TV. Do you have a sense of continuity with her work as an auteur? Do you feel like.
1: I think so. Although I like that, that she spikes that punch a little bit and Mm -hmm. sort of makes you catch up to where she is. I remember reading when Holy smoke came out that the piano is the movie she feels the least kind of personal relationship to, and Mm -hmm. that all the stuff people tend to like less feels more like her to Mm -hmm. her, even in its variation. I put off watching Top of the Lake for a long time because I was a little worried about whether I would feel that sense of kinship with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't felt that, for example, with Mildred Pierce Mm -hmm. by another filmmaker who was kind of equally informative to me around the same time and was just nervous. And then I remembered she's been doing TV a long time, Angel at My Table's TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And having just recently watched it, I it wasn't the only thing I loved about it, but it it was great to see the TV form released into something that had her signature so strongly. Mm -hmm and many other peoples. She's a great collaborator, which
0: is something else I love about her. Could you say more about that? Um, because just... again, it's like the idea of the auteur is like the singular artistic force. Right? Yeah,
1: and, and I tend to think of it, in debt to people like her as, as a sort of stable center of gravity, right, mm-hmm. but not a governing presence necessarily. And so um, as I watched how her films changed when Stuart Dryberg wasn't shooting them anymore, or when he hadn't shot them yet, as I mm-hmm. moved backward, or how the move from a different composer almost every time until recently was changing not just how the movie sounded, but what the relationship of the images to the soundscape was. Mm -hmm. I feel like the I don't watch people stepping into line to fit some kind of defined Campion aesthetic, but you get the sense that her investments in the material are still so muscular, but really open to somebody else's take on it. And so just tracking that, especially when they're artists that you've seen them work with other directors, and see those through lines, but also what's pretty endemic to their collaborations with her.
3: I just wanted to say that Campion was also extremely important to me. And um, a lot of this always has to do with what age you were when these films came out. Mm-hmm. Um, she was someone who hit me at just the right time. I always actually talk about 1993 as the, the year for me. Um, and I remember back then thinking, well, everyone always talked about 39 is the greatest movie year. But for me, it was 93. You just flip those numbers. <laughs> I mean, I, I used to talk about that a lot. I mean, this was the year of the piano, first right. and foremost. But Schindler's List meant a lot to me at that time. The Remains of the Day meant a lot to me. The Age of Innocence meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia meant a lot to me. Mm. Six Degrees of Separation meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Jurassic Park also. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of movies that year that were like defining what I thought at the time a serious cinema was supposed to be mm-hmm. the piano of all those films. Well, I'd say adding in the age of innocence, I'd say the piano and the age of innocence of all those films are the ones that still for me are kind of at the top of the mountain where mm-hmm. um, my estimation of them hasn't really changed much. The piano is a film that my parents took me to see in the theater and my mother's response to it, which was bafflement and the, a feeling of uh, being unsettled mm-hmm. and talking about it for many days after was really de- defining for me as well, like that a movie can create that kind of response in someone my own mother that 's actually very jarring, right mm-hmm. um, I, I was used to seeing films with her that we could talk about happily after many days <laughs> and, and and sit her you know back at the dinner table and reminisce finally about that movie we saw the piano she was wrestling with for a long time, and that really, really moved me. And I remember having many discussions about it, what it meant, what the end meant, what the metaphors meant, Mm -hmm. why certain things happened the way they did visually in such a way that we ended up watching it many times on video when it came out. So Mm. it was a movie that we really shared.
0: That's
3: wonderful. In that sense of... um I think my parents had the experience
1: the sixth or seventh time I saw it when they came of watching their kid be suddenly fundamentalist about something that they found kind of striking, but, but couldn't quite work out who they knew as their child and an, an extreme attachment to this. And in that way, it felt like that sense of zealotry that the movie is in, in part about and that a lot of her mm-hmm. things are about sort of spread to you as a viewer, you know, and having this, I will do anything to get there again at 315 tomorrow. And I teach a class often at Northwestern to like 15 freshmen. That's an intro to film analysis. And I always pick the year that those freshmen were born just so the movies are close enough that Mm -hmm. they're not a totally distant land, but they don't already have opinions. And so we did a 93 class one year with like 20 films, experimental fiction documentary. And I, I, I share your sense of my level of investment in it has never downgraded. But um, my relationship to it does change as I get older. And like, I get different questions each time I teach it and about the, its relationship to colonialism and its relationship mm-hmm. to gender. And, and since she seems so uninterested in being on a pedestal somewhere, I actually like that I get to fight with her movies in different ways over time without actually loving them less.
0: Mm. That's always a sign of great work where it's, it, it changes slightly during the time you're viewing it. Someone actually, it was funny, somebody asked me last night, it's like, do you view movies differently now in the Trump era? And it's like, well, yes and no. Like how, like all (laughs) movies are different depending on when you watch them. But anyway.
2: For the longest time, uh, I felt like I really didn't get her work. Mm. And I found it interesting, but I couldn't really find a way into it. And I wasn't sort of affectively seized by it. It happened quite recently in the last couple of years. And it happened when I saw In the Cut, which I now Mm. firmly believe is a masterpiece of 20th century cinema, uh, 21st century cinema, I should say, uh, made right after 9-11. And the mise-en-scene of that film, everything about that film is so intensely expressionist. And it kind of has to do with how a woman might feel in a very threatening kind of environment. And every single shot, image, object, color used in that film is so intensely personal And it just feels like a very intense experience of uh, expression of a woman's experience. And so once I kind of got that, the film was unbearably moving to me, reduced me to tears. I watched it twice the same day and it was just the searing experience that I will never forget. And it just feels like this is a film that I needed the discourse of rape culture to to actually to understand. And when Mm. the film first came out, Uh, People weren't talking about that, about that expression. The expression did exist since the 70s, but the discourse around rape culture kind of grew more recently. And so knowing that, this film suddenly was blindingly made a lot of sense to me. And so I think it's a wonderful, it's a fantastic film. Mm.
3: In the Cut is certainly the the film, as she said in the interview that she did with Nick, it's the film that she wants to revisit most with audiences now, and she's most gratified at seeing that people want to wrestle with now, right? Mm -hmm. This is the film that she's most excited about uh, returning to. Wow.
2: Great to know.
1: And I took a bus five hours to New York to see it when it was open. And I (laughs) felt like New Yorkers kind of got it in a way in that audience. Like there is a New Yorkness to that movie and its sense of emergency. that felt like it landed with that audience, even though it clearly wasn't landing in general.
0: Mm. The way she shoots the love scenes is interesting. And as uh, a friend of mine once said, she has this thing for the ass. Mm-hmm. She definitely does. It's like it runs throughout. it. It's very bizarre. Well, let's but leave great. it at that.
3: But yeah, that's she has of, a thing for the ass. She
0: has a thing for the ass.
3: Yeah. First of all, how is that bizarre? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: No, it's just, that, it's just, you know, I mean, in, in terms of like representing sexuality, I think it is sort of an outlier. It's fair to say that's an outlier. Sure.
3: Not, mm-hmm. Only because most movies are made by straight men.
0: Yes. And the only butt you get is like man butt. And it's very quick, they
2: cut very quickly. But anyway, so Girish, who was someone when you were little? The very first director, I think, that kind of drew me in as a director. Yes. Uh, was actually this Indian filmmaker uh, named Manmohan Desai. And uh, he's a Bollywood filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, started making films in the 60s, but his best known work is from the 70s and 80s. He died in the 90s in a very unusual way. Uh, he was leaning on the side of a balcony, on the railing of a balcony, and the balcony kind of... Uh, collapsed And then he just fell to his death.
0: Oh, Jesus.
2: And so to this day, I will not lean on the railing of any balcony because I, I just remember that story so vividly. Uh, there was some uh, debate about whether it was it suicide or but people seem to agree that it was an accident. So he kind of died young, you know, from that uh, reason. But uh, in the 70s and 80s, he made his best known films. His most famous film is probably Amar Akbar Anthony from 1977. Recently, a book uh, was written about the film. It's a totally fascinating film because he was kind of uh, known as the king of the masala movie, mm-hmm. and so this is sort of this the, the apotheosis of the Mas- masala movie, a as they call it uh, often in the Hindi films, you know, using these acronyms, um, and so um, in this film you have it's kind of this um, unknowingly postmodern jumble of genres like um, the slapstick comedy the romance the action film uh, and then other peculiar indian genres like the suffering mother film or the lost and found film where a family gets broken up and then uh, they, they grow up uh, to be adults uh, without realizing that they were part of a family that was together and then the family gets uh, kind of reunited at the end so this movie kind of throws everything in, into the cauldron and, um, so that was probably the signal, uh, movie experience, uh, of my early cinephilia was his films and, um, Omar Akbar Anthony, uh, more specifically.
0: And I guess, could you define the masala film? Because it is like, yeah. it is, it's a very special genre. <laughs> yeah,
2: it, it really is. And a lot of people think of masala as like, a spice but it's actually a mix of spices right. a weird idiot so when, when i go to buy curry powder at the at, a, at an american uh, supermarket people think oh it's curry that's a spice no it's actually like yeah. this weird blend of spices and it's different from one shop to another one store to another in, in india but it seems to have a certain um continuity yeah there is
0: a yeah it's like a, yeah each one depending on what you use it can t- the dish can taste totally different but ultimately it is more there's there's always going to be cumin
2: right. there's always going to be Tur- turmeric turmeric there you go exactly yes. so the, the 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 cumin might be you know something like um, romance in in, yes. in in these films they're they're all, and, and so th- they have this jarring kind of blend of tones and genres and modes and they're kind of radical in a way because they're completely mm-hmm. unclassical and they're constructed in blocks of like a block of slapstick comedy, a block of melodrama, a block of action. And so Desai himself called them items. He called each of these... Blocks, items. So a film was not actually a unified kind of construction, seamless construction. It was this radically, like mo- almost cubist kind of way of looking mm-hmm. at it: uh, a bunch of blocks, a, a bunch of items put together, strung together. And yet, this wonderful quote that I that I'll never forget. He said, "When your story is weak, show them everything." <laughs> so kind of inc- incredible a way to express uh, the power of cinema. You know, like. Mm-hmm. As pure spectacle, it's like, um, if you can't really craft a good narrative, uh, just, you know, show them everything. So what he showed you uh, was like costumes and uh, uh, exotic locations. And uh, spectacle of different kinds and unexpected incidents that just kind of erupt in the narrative, uh, often really nutty and loony and implausible, but nevertheless, you know, arresting. So it was like this radical, like termite art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been drawn to, to these nut, slightly nutty, slightly loony filmmakers because of that re- formative reason. It's so like Sam Fuller, Paul Verhoeven, these, I love these mm-hmm. people because I loved this side before I loved them. Um, so that's kind of what a Masala movie is.
1: And pardon my ignorance about Masala and about Desai, but um, was he seen as an innovator of that approach or in cahoots with others, but did it the best of anybody? Or
2: uh, g- Very good question. So um, the, the, the cinema of that period, m- the first cinema that I was attracted to was actually very non-autorist. And mm-hmm. I, I still have a lot of ambivalence about being an autorist. Um, as you should, (laughs) as as one should, um, what's said here will stay here.
0: (laughs) This is definitely not being recorded. Don't worry. Don't
2: worry. Um, so actually, uh, he did some of these things, as you said, um, in, in a really good way, but actually there were other films that are very similar that I can't really tell who directed them, even though I've seen them many, many times. It's like a real genius of the system kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, style uh but he went uh a little further in his in his lunus in his loon in his deranged kind of approach so his films i can i can of, often spot but uh, many others it's hard to spot
0: yeah so you saw these in a movie theater or did you see these on a home video? Like, how did you work through the canon, let's okay. say? Yeah, so,
2: so India is a huge movie-going nation. And so my parents and I and my sister, we were a small family. Uh, we always lived away from our hometown because my dad used to move a lot. Uh, every year we moved to a different city. And so we went together to the movies at least twice a week. So at least eight to ten times a month, we, were, we went to the movies together as a family. So these were the kinds of films that we were watching, and my parents enjoyed these kinds of films as well. So that's kind of how I saw them on the on the big screen.
3: Are the Desai films? There's something specific about them outside of the genre. Um, I'm trying to, you know, to kind of disassociate the two, like the idea. Like I know you're saying it's kind of hard to identify him as an auteur.
2: Yeah, but S- why? So then why did you pick him? Right for, to talk about. Right. So um, they go so far. They go so far, they take these same elements and they push them to such a breaking point that they kind of almost appear to be self-referential or or knowing in a way. Like he's knowingly breaking these rules and boundaries, while other filmmakers didn't really have as bold of a vision, even, even if they use the same melange of genres and tones and stuff. So because he went that extra step, it's something that I loved later De Palma for as well, mm. because it kind of takes a lot of these elements and kind of cranks them up so high and foregrounds them that I I like that gesture of excess. And so it was was that uh, extra 20% excess that kind of drew drew me to this eye.
1: So when you think about who you were then watching them or even who you are now, does it feel like a surprise that that filmmaker would have resonated so strongly with you or a date with destiny that this, of course, would
2: have been my person. You know, it does make sense because um, we have a lot of official culture in India, classical music and with a long history of art and sculpture and so on. But I hate to say this, but I always felt like the kid who loved like the cheap pop music, you know, and cheap uh, vernacular kind of forms of art and popular art. And so these films are very uh, radically impure. I I didn't know how to articulate any of this at the time, of course. I was just drawn to them because they were rude and they were from the street and uh, they were just full of energy. And so when I read that Manny Farber termite art, white elephant art, Essay. I felt like this was the central essay of my cinephilia. Is you know I was responding to all this before I read the essay. You know, which was much much later. So there's something about cinephilia that seems to bring these very disparate kinds of affects and sources together. I don't know what it is, but most cinephiles are not only interested in art cinema; they're also equally invested in popular cinema. And so I find that kind of attraction to these extreme polarities to be something that's a unique hallmark of cinephilia. I don't know why it is, mm-hmm. but it's the the sensibility. I, I find that in all the cinephiles I meet.
0: Right. And I mean the masala movies of the 70s, a lot of there is like this definite tension between like how elaborate these visions are, let's say like there are so many extras in a scene. There's so there's so much love put into the costumes and yet there is like this palpable this is not a Hollywood production. They had a definite ceiling on what the budget could be and like that is so that is a super appealing thing like I love that's so fascinating to me and like there's something so much more endearing about that than, you know, something that's totally polished, something that's totally, as you said, uh, officially sanctioned, like nice what the Ministry of Culture wants you to be sort of mm. telling the world about.
2: Exactly. But. And and the government always, they lost no opportunity to basically disown these films right. and say, you know, that this is not the official product of India. This is just something, you know, rude and vulgar <laughs> for the masses, you know. He doesn't and, even go here. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly (laughs) exactly and and instead you know uh the national film development corporation the nfdc would put money into parallel cinema the art cinema and so Satyajit ray was we wanted him to be our face uh and i love ray and i love his movies but but my heart first belonged to these uh, other films the more popular films
1: i love these conversations too because in the same way that every year, like, festival juries get announced and people think they have these presumptions about who, who the Cone brothers would or would not like based on or what like their Will movies Smith. are like. Like, yeah. all
0: this shitting <laughs> all on right. Will Smith. I'm like, right. you're rude. <laughs>
1: we don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and if, if we could indulge in, like, you know, a compliment around the table, like, you're somebody who I read over and over in pursuit of like more clarity and kind of nuanced measuredness in writing about mm-hmm. film. And you've been a real role model to me of that. And so then to hear that you're so invested in this wild, extravagant, 120% filmmaker, that's just the kind of discovery about fellow people, you know, a little bit, not a lot that I just find really exciting in these kinds of revelation spaces. Yeah.
2: I just love the the um, incredible diversity of sensibility in in invested cinephiles. I think that's one of the most pleasurable things in the world mm. is to just meet people who on the one hand are extremely invested in this medium that you think is so important and, and on the other hand have are coming at it from such different perspectives. Mm. So so rewarding.
0: Michael,
3: as I've spoken of on this podcast before, I could have spoken of De Palma if we're talking about watching something when you're way too young, but I'm not going to talk about him today. Uh, I I decided to first talk about Ingmar Bergman, someone who I know, uh, Nick, you had also spoken perhaps talking about on this very podcast. It may sound obvious. I think it might sound obvious, especially to more lay cinephiles these days than than devoted cinephiles because he's kind of fallen out of favor it, there's been a long process of him falling out of favor so it's not considered cool to talk about Imar Bergman and being a huge influence on your thinking and seeing but um, he is and he was and I think that's because he had reached such a summit in his career for so long that he kind of became the stand-in name for art cinema and his films had distribution over a long period of time so because of that they were videotapes accessible, and libraries picked up his films. So when I was first really getting into other kinds of cinema other than Hollywood cinema, I started to realize that these films were available at my local libraries. And the teenage years of a cinephile are often lonely ones. (laughs) They're inherently lonely. There were (laughs) a couple years there where all I was doing was renting 8 to 12 movies a week and watching them on my 13-inch television with my VCR in my bedroom could hear the same. sounds of the kids playing in the streets playing with their balls and things and losers <laughs> <little same. laughs> Michael don't you want to go out and play no I'm watching persona <laughs> uh, so <laughs> you have, like,
2: you're totally pale <laughs>
3: no. I'm still pale and this mm. is how it all began
2: <laughs> <Just dark circles>. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: I have those as well um, but Bergman was so Bergman was not just accessible you know, in a literal way. It was a kind of an art cinema that was accessible also in like a spiritual way even, right? Like you kind of, even at a young age, if you were open to it, you kind of got it. You know that you were watching something that was constructed for you to take in in a particular way. And uh, and I think what shocked me the most about his films and what appealed to me the most was the way that the people interacted with each other in his films. There was an, an aggressiveness there was a, a poetic aggressiveness, the way that they interacted. And they were mostly women, and they were mostly in close-up. And all of these things were extremely formative Because when I started looking at movies like Cries and Whispers, and Hour of the Wolf, and Persona, and Wild Strawberries, I started to wonder why other movies didn't do the things that those movies were doing. Right. So if I had a big stack of eight movies from the libraries every week, and one of them was Persona and the rest were, I don't know, whatever middling Oscar bait from Miramax was out in the 90s or or whatever, like 80s Hollywood movie I was getting caught up on. Why did that one Bergman movie not look like the other movies? So Bergman was the first filmmaker that I started to also read about at an early age. I mean, I was obviously reading things like Pauline Kael reviews and Ebert reviews and things like that. But with Bergman, I started reading interview books. I started reading you know things that he had written about his childhood. I started reading books written about him that were in the library. Again, the libraries had these things. He was such a recognizable auteur name that libraries would just kind of, okay, we'll put a Bergman book in the film book section. So he, it was just always there. And I remember flipping through the books and looking at photographs of movies that I couldn't see. I remember sawdust and tinsel was not available to me my entire childhood, but the images from that movie and the books were so fascinating and terrifying. that what a Dickensian just, uh, sentence. Sawdust and tinsel was not available to me my entire <laughs> childhood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was, I came from a very impoverished family yeah. now. Um, so, yeah, so basically it, it, wasn't just, um, it wasn't just that I was watching movies. It was I was kind of ingesting the whole idea of, of Bergman. And um, that didn't really end, I'd have to say. I continued to discover new films because there are so many of them. I was discovering them. I'm still discovering them now. But I remember also watching Fanny and Alexander for the first time. And it was that big double cassette, the double VHS cassette. And that, of course, that was the three hour cut version. I didn't know at the time that there was a five and a half hour miniseries. I didn't. I I thought it was a three hour film. And I remember thinking that the imagery in Fanny and Alexander was so shockingly intimate. I know that you could say maybe that would be about any of his films, but that movie affected me so profoundly. I think because it was about children. Yeah, I was going to say. That it kind of, it gave me like nightmares for a month, basically. And to this day, there are certain things I, I can't even think about Christmas itself without thinking about that film and um, kind of almost putting myself into that world. So it really it's experiential. Right. I mean, this, this, what, what he was doing was, is so moving and meaningful to me that to hear the culture or to kind of re- see the culture turning away from him around even the time of his death there were some pieces written at the time, if you recall, where Antonioni and Bergman dying. Yeah. Um, but Antonioni Antoni... still, still has that cool factor. No,
0: he did. He, there was way more written about Bergman, I remember, as an there was Antonioni a Antonioni fan. There was a, lot written about very... Berg, there
3: was a lot written about Bergman, about how he was outmoded, though. I felt there was a bit sneering about both of them yeah. at there that There was moment. one piece that was sneering I like, about them. Thank you, but thank you for
0: um, arbitrating that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I think everybody's right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, and I think there's one piece we're all thinking about that was sneering at both of them. But generally there was a sense, oh, we, we had put Bergman away when mm-hmm. we put away Childish Things, sort of. I hope that that tide has turned back or is turning again. I don't know, because I watch his films and I'm still just kind of amazed at how much expression you can get into a single frame, a, a single shot. I, I, I don't think that many directors have been that primal with the screen there was a day my first
1: year of graduate school when somebody made a kind of mocking allusion to how You know, we're talking about the 60s. I think somebody, a professor was teaching ECAIA and was saying, you know, back in the 70s, people actually used to worry about things like whether Godard or Bergman was greater. I mean, that was a long time ago. Okay. And I was like, I wonder who is greater. Like, I didn't know, but it was just assumed around the table that we'd all moved on to the proper conclusion. Yeah, I remember that sort of stinginess just having totally set in. I think there should be
3: be debates about these people forever but not necessarily debates on whether we should be debating
0: right (laughs) or it should
3: just be debates about how we feel about godard now and how we feel about bergman now and why and what does that mean and how does cinema continue like what is the next if we don't understand the past how are we going to understand the future yeah
0: okay tangentially this is why i don't like lists because with sports it's like one team plays another until eventually you figure out okay this team is the best for this year art does not work like that you can't be like oh yeah so this one and this one and like let's have them fight it out no you have to it's a perpetual it's an ongoing conversation it's an ongoing consideration and yeah keep talking about Bergman
3: really you don't think in a documentary list we should be comparing Shoah and Fahrenheit <laughs> and uh, March of the Penguins, March uh, of the Penguins. yeah <laughs>
1: About March of the Penguins. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you invited me on to this. Yeah, this was a real blockbuster, March of the Penguins. is not as big as
0: Fahrenheit (laughs) So, a director that was important to me when I was young. Here's the scene. It's 1999, blockbuster, northeast side of Cedar Rapids. I go in. I love this location because they have a ton of anime, Japanese cartoons. To choose from, huge selection. Horde of horrors, it's not there anymore. All of the tapes are gone. So, what do I do? It sounds like I have to watch a live action movie. Which live action movie? Which I've well, heard rumors about. Which I've heard rumors about. Okay. I know people, there's like this one called Pulp Fiction
3: that people really
0: like. And so, to, I don't know, participate in humanity. <laughs>
3: I, ju- I choose That's an interesting way to participate in humanity. Yes. However, begrudgingly, however,
0: begrudgingly, I watched Pulp Fiction. And I was totally blown away by it. It was just exactly what you need as like an awkward 14 year old girl. This is how to be cool. And here are these extremely cool people doing wonderful things with language and also just like the, the electricity of Fusing all these different elements together that, you know, of films that I had no idea existed at the time, bringing together elements of A Band Apart, Kiss Me Deadly, so many different things. You know, the performances are all really great. And then also just having like a quirky sense of humor, now a dirty word, but not so dirty back then. Which is the
3: dirty word? Quirky? Yes. Okay. Not sense or The Gold
0: Watch part is like, the Gold Watch is absurd. That's like meant to be quirky and absurd.
3: To be fair, there are many things in Pulp Fiction I'm sure that when you look back at now, don't age so hot. Probably even worse than the Gold Watch.
0: Yeah, the uh, Black Wife. <laughs> yeah, QT's not great on race. That's sort of where he loses me. But after seeing Pulp Fiction, I went to his, uh, what the film that was closest to that, obviously his first film, Reservoir Dogs. And then I went to Jackie Brown, love Jackie Brown. Like everyone in this room, I wish he would make another film like Jackie Brown because it's so heartfelt and also just technically amazing. And then also, uh, when kill bill came out, I saw both volumes in the theater multiple times. It is definitely the movie I've seen the most times in the theater. And, um, I don't know. I find the uh, part where she punches out of the grave super inspiring.
3: Well, I would think that your love of anime probably also affected your love of Kill Bill.
0: A uh, little tidbits, yes. But I feel, but it's weird because it's like, obviously, Lady Snowblood was a huge inspiration for Kill Bill. But I feel like he borrows a lot more from people like King Hu in that film in particular. And just like, as I've gotten older, I've I feel like what now I look for in a film and just makes me really savor it and appreciate it is that control of space and just like doing fascinating things with space. And um, a touch of Zen, like the first part of that is just like watching somebody watching someone else and following them as they follow someone else. And Tarantino does a lot of things like that, too. And, you know, in Glorious Bastards, really fantastic commentary about violence and how we watch violence, some really poignant things, some really funny things, unleashing Christoph Waltz onto the world. Quentin Tarantino is a Pandora's box, let's say. And um, Hateful Eight, really hate that movie. I think that movie hates its audience. It's probably, um, if we're going to periodize it, I guess it's sort of like the first film of the Trump era, if we want to call it that. Even the way that he talked about the film was very much like how Trump talks about himself. And even Django Unchained, I felt like it was not about the titular character because, you know, the Django character is supposed to be silent and cool and well who do we have? We have this Dennis who's just like constantly babbling and showing how like great it is to be doing these verbal gymnastics and it's actually fucking excruciating there and is not. fun.
3: <laughs> the, the, there is the sense and and, um, and I he's a filmmaker that I do admire mm-hmm. on many levels but um, in terms of the writing and the way he writes dialogue the self-congratulatory aspect of it yeah. it's not simply that it's noticeable. It's that it actually affects the right, the, yes. the dialogue and the, the, the plotting even oh, yeah. because when everybody talks the same and when everyone has the same kind of um, cadences, mm-hmm. you kind of lose any kind of strain of character credibility. Right. I don't think this well, is always the problem, but I it's becoming increasingly the problem. I certainly yeah. know this with hateful eight. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's almost when people talk in his movies, it's like they're talking about talking. Yeah. And you can see the words on the page. I don't mind that so much in mm-hmm. theory. I don't mind when there's a, when there's stiltedness in films, from certainly from certain dr- certain directors. Yeah. But with Tarantino, the yeah, the self awareness reaches kind of new heights of I- irritatingness. <laughs> I suppose.
0: Yeah, it's it's very in love with itself in a way that is totally distracting from anything else that's trying to be conveyed.
3: Yeah, when his films move away enough from the action almost abstract themselves Mm -hmm. then they become really interesting which is why I love Death Proof so much and I really do think it's one of his great films the full version not the grindhouse shortened one and I'm going to make you watch it because I I, I think it's quite extraordinary but I think that movie is this it's like a winnowing down to an essence of Mm -hmm. Tarantino um, it's kind of like a perfectly structured bifurcated narrative. You have these two mirror images kind of staring at each other. It's, it comments on it's film criticism because it comments on rape revenge films by putting them in a whole different context. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, there are there are these kind of long dialogue scenes, and then they're followed by these bursts of action. It's actually very interesting shape wise. It's a very shaped film. In that movie, I don't mind the long self-congratulatory dialogue because mm-hmm. everything is so removed from reality. You don't really get the sense that you're watching characters interacting in an actual world. Mm-hmm. They're interacting in this kind of barren movie landscape. So I think it really works there. And interestingly, that's a movie that he hates the most his, of his own films. He, he hates it. Huh. He thinks he failed. But Interesting. a lot of popular filmmakers <laughs> always hate their least successful films because they... They gauge success based By on finances. dollars.
0: Even David Lynch. And that's like Dune. Meaning what? Is, what does he hate? He hates Dune.
3: Oh. Well. I'm sorry, Dune's great.
0: <laughs> David, if you're listening,
3: don't be so hard on yourself. But if you had to pick <laughs> a least favorite David Lynch film, it would not be Dune.
0: I'm sorry. I think. I'm, okay. And you can
3: like it, but isn't it? What would, what would be your least favorite David Lynch film? You have to pick one. Do we all Wild have to do at it? Heart. Oh, yeah. Probably. Okay. You got it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like Wild at Heart. I, I like, but again, it's like I like all of his films a lot. I like all of them a lot, but I I think there are so many little things in that movie that reappear throughout
3: all of his work. But he got like a bajillion dollars from Dino De Laurentiis to make it. Interesting. Um, to stay on Lynch for a second was Lynch formative for anybody at an early age in this room? No, Mm-mm. that's interesting. Everyone shook their heads. Um, He's I would more say of a this, college discovery. I would say the same thing. I watched. Some of his movies too young and didn't like them. And they're still the ones that I don't like. But then I grew. Mulholland Drive was the one that crystallized. And then I, I mean, I was so, I walked into a wall when it was over. I was so amazed by it.
0: I saw that in the theater and did not understand it. And then I remember some guy was leaving and he's like, I think it has something to do with the names. They switch names. And I was like, that's not helpful. Was that Michael? (laughs) It was not Michael. Are you calling
1: him some guy to his face? And then I shuffled off into the night.
0: <laughs> in into the In a trench wall, coat. <laughs>
1: into a
3: wall.
0: No, I saw a matinee, actually. Thursday afternoon.
3: That film was, when it came out, there were still phone booths in, in New York City. And it, I wouldn't say it was the pre-cell phone hour, but I didn't have one yet. And most right. people I knew didn't have one. And when that film was over, and it was an advanced screening of it, I felt very lucky at that age to get to go to a critic screening. Yeah. And when I emerged, it was from, a, it was from Magnus. It was, a, it was a Times Square area screening room so i emerged i was so disoriented into this this terrifying overbearing neon Mm. world that i ran to a phone booth to take shelter and i called my best friend and i was like shaking on
2: the phone to tell him that i had seen this movie and i'll
3: never forget that
2: i have two questions about tarantino but i don't know i don't want to we're going to talk about lynch oh no i was gonna i was gonna actually ask you about tarantino whether he was important for you or no, oh, um,
1: well, he was important to me when my friend Kate Culpepper, who'd invited me to the Sadie Hawkins dance, decided the same moment I did that this sucked. And we went across the street to the same theater <laughs> where I'd seen the piano and we saw Pulp Fiction in oh, our in our flannels.
3: Nice.
1: Um, but uh, Jackie Brown was the moment where it, I felt a personal connection to, him, to a piece that he'd made. I don't know that yeah. I ever felt a personal connection to him, but and I think it was because I I felt so seduced by his own reverence for his material. Elmore Leonard, Pam Greer, mm-hmm. Sam Jackson, Bridget Fonda, to whom I'd never seen reverence expressed. <laughs> you know, like uh, there just seemed like a real subduing of self,
3: mm-hmm.
1: even at the same time that that movie's unmistakably made by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Um, but that has not resurfaced since for me. But that was what made me, when you were talking about Death Proof, actually, I realize how supercilious this sounds, but sometimes I feel like filmmakers get praised for the wrong thing, right? And mm-hmm. that that his notoriety for writing dialogue nobody else can write, when I think about Death Proof, I think of it as having almost no dialogue. I forget, I was surprised when you just said there are long speeches in it because there are huge swaths of that movie that just give themselves over to some different gifts of his that I think mm-hmm. he doesn't trust very often, so I was just curious both about, maybe that resonated a little bit for me and what you were talking about, about the different trajectory of what it's been like to be a fan of his. But I'm also just curious, since you were the first person to mention a filmmaker in this conversation, that your feelings have really changed. Mm-hmm. We even talked about holding on to a filmmaker and we were yeah. being told our feelings were supposed to change. What is it like to watch the early ones again?
0: Oh, it's, um, it's still pleasurable. It's still, you know, you can have fond memories of an ex-boyfriend. And hate their guts.
1: So you dated <laughs> Quentin Tarantino?
0: <laughs> yes, in my mind, yes. Um, big bi- scoop. Big scoop. Hot, hot goss. <laughs> um, but here, but the, the thing, the thing is, just that he provided such a template for cinephilia you go to the video store and you start checking out videos and you feel like him you're like oh yeah because he just started watching all these films at the video store he saw fort apache a million times and now he gets to do it for real and like that's just so inspiring to somebody who is just sort of starting out on that journey of exploring like what this medium has to offer and i have to say that i really enjoyed jackie brown the first time i saw it and now i watch it and it's like it's so unbelievably good. Like it's like a dagger in my heart that he can't ever do anything. he can't ever bring himself to do something like that again. That's the only way I can say it. It's just like profoundly sad to me.
1: But mm. It's I, a pretty rare case of watching somebody rise to something like their best self while being terrified of how to follow up the thing they just got famous for. Right. Exactly. Like that's usually such a death sentence mm-hmm. and, and it's just incredible how whatever that invigorated in him or humbled him with, was so productive.
3: His his talents are so extraordinary that it's it's it is unfortunate that he can't um, apply them to something that would surprise even himself. Mm. Put it that yeah. way. Like I've always wanted him to make a musical. I think mm-hmm. that Kill Bill Volume One especially is evidence that he can make a musical, and he could make an incredible musical, and yeah. he would probably enjoy making it because he loves all kinds of films. He is a cinephile extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. Every type, every genre from Hollywood to everywhere else.
0: To Hong Kong, yeah,
3: specifically. <laughs> f- to New Wave, yeah, to, yeah. yeah, Asian cinemas, it's true. but Rolling um, Thunder Collection. I don't think he will ever make a musical because it's probably he'd probably consider it not masculine enough. Right. I think that he wants to please a very particular segment of the population and he's an audience pleaser and he knows who his audience is. And if he wants to make a Charles Manson movie, fine, go make a Charles Manson movie. But we know you have Jackie Brown in you. Yeah. And we know you have a fucking awesome musical in you.
0: Yeah. No, I know. It's the it's that ego. I mean, if nothing else that defines his work is that sense of ego. Because he is somebody who, the real Horatio Alger story, right? Like he climbed his way out of this video store and behind the camera. Now he makes multi-million dollar movies, right? But he won't ever let you fucking forget it. Like he's very... Trumpian in that respect. I I hate to keep using that term about this guy who was so instrumental to me enjoying
3: movies. <laughs> Imagine if we had to like Trump because he was somehow good at what he did. I, that would be terrible. He's clearly he's terrible nice, at what he does. Or because everything. he done the good ones. What
1: if what if that were true? You know? If Donald Trump true. had done one good thing in nineteen ninety-seven, that nope. would be a hard, effective space to occupy, but he doesn't give us that problem.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Ripold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine or check out our app available on Android, iOS and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app.